Good evening. So a 40-mile-long military convoy is now on the outskirts of Kiev, the capital of Ukraine. Missiles have hit the TV tower in the city, killing five people. A memorial that was there to 33,000 Jews that were murdered in 1941 has also been hit and damaged. And what is happening to the Ukrainian capital is it is gradually being encircled. Now, one of the questions on my mind from first thing this morning is if you've got a 40-mile-long military column, surely it's pretty vulnerable to air attack. And we know that yesterday the Ukrainians did use some drones with some effect. But it appears they have a shortage of fighter jets, and they've turned and asked for them. NATO have said no. Poland have said no. The UK haven't completely ruled it out, but haven't completely ruled it in. But what has been ruled out by the Americans and by the British is the idea of a no-fly zone. Now, Peter Bone, for example, said, well, look, in the west of Ukraine, where over 100,000 people a day are fleeing the country, mostly going into Poland, surely there we should operate a no-fly zone. But no, it's been made pretty clear by both Britain and America, we will not do that. President Zelensky has been trying to rally for more support. He addressed the European Parliament today, albeit via a Zoom call. So really, where we are with this is that we've supplied military equipment to the Ukrainians. We've provided training to the Ukrainian army. But the truth is, they're on their own. And the reason we won't countenance a no-fly zone is that could take us directly into a fight with Russian jets. And we won't risk an all-out war with a nuclear power. If you think of it in that context, it is without doubt the most serious situation the world has seen since the Cuban Missile Crisis nearly 60 years ago. And yet, I think there's huge numbers of us that look at the role the president of the Ukraine has played, that look at the bravery of, of, of the men, and in some cases women too, that are signing up and prepared to fight. And we can see already they've inflicted extraordinary damage on the invading Russians. But if you look at the situation in the capital now, well, it sounds to me, looks to me like it's going to be a very, very difficult, very, very bloody fight. And I sense large numbers of people think we should perhaps do more. So you tell me, should Britain do more? Farage at gbnews.uk. Emotionally, I feel right now, you know, my admiration for the Ukrainians fighting for their independence, fighting for their country, their liberty. So I feel in many ways that we should. But we must understand if we do, we risk confrontation with a nuclear power. It's not an easy situation. And Darren McCaffrey, GB News' political editor, it's not an easy political situation either, is it? It's really not, though you're right in saying the Prime Minister, who was in Poland and Estonia today, reiterated time and time again. He was also stood next to Jens Stoltenberg in Estonia. There's even British troops, it must be said, out there, of course, on NATO's front line on their eastern flank, uh, that there would be no fly zone, that no NATO countries... Here's the Prime Minister in Poland. No NATO countries could countenance that, not least of all, as you've rightly pointed out, that would mean essentially coming into contact with Russian fighter pilots. Yeah. It could mean the death of NATO fighter pilots, and it could lead to a whole other set of circumstances that we couldn't even fathom at this time. But that would be war, basically, with it, Russia. Of yeah. course, it, it we would be, be dragged into that war. And it would be war with a nuclear power. And, yeah. and, and we do not know where that could lead. So at the moment, the Prime Minister is very clear about this, but you're right in suggesting this is a very emotional issue, mm. not least of all for the Ukrainians. And when he was in Poland, the Prime Minister was somewhat confronted uh, by a Ukrainian journalist slash activist about whether Britain should do more. Uh, let's just have a listen. Mm. Kharkiv, the city where I was studying, was bombarded today, fully, the downtown square. So you're talking about the stoicism of Ukrainian people, but Ukrainian women and Ukrainian children are in deep fear because of bombs and missiles which are going from the sky. And Ukrainian people are desperately asking for the West to protect our sky. We are asking for the no-fly zone. We are saying in response that it will trigger World War III. But what is the alternative, Mr. Prime Minister? I see that my family members, that my team members are saying that we are crying. We don't have where to run. 
Well, this is what is happening, Prime Minister. Well, thank you. Thank you very much for, uh, for your questions and, and thank you for, for getting here today. And I'm, I'm glad that you, you have been able to, to get here. And uh, look, I just want to, to say that I'm acutely conscious that there is not enough that we can do uh, to, as, the, as the UK government uh, to help in the way that you want. And I've got to be honest about that. Well, that was very emotional, wasn't it? Perhaps not surprisingly. But of course, when we persuaded Ukraine to give up their nuclear weapons... Was the social responsibility, of course, the was. Well, we said we'd protect them, yeah. didn't we? Well, so, for, so there are, I think, four things Britain would say it is doing, and maybe there is room within those four things to do more. So first of all, militarily, you know, Britain has committed still to sending some weapons to Ukraine. We have to remember, actually, to be fair to the government here, uh, they were the first European country to start arming uh, the Ukrainian military at the start of this year properly. Mm, mm. Uh, in retrospect, maybe countries like Germany and others should have been doing that much sooner and the Ukrainian army would be better equipped. The problem is, is getting those arms now because Russia is occupying quite a lot of the land. Obviously, you know, the, the army themselves are involved in battles. Lots of that military equipment that's already on its way is essentially at the Polish border and is struggling to get across. There are sanctions. And tonight, Liz Truss, the foreign secretary, has announced uh, the first set of sanctions against Belarusian uh, individuals, because we know, of course, they're playing a huge yeah. part in this war. Uh, there is a sense uh, that if things do get worse, and it must, be, it must be said, the perception here in Westminster is that it is going to get at worse than this comes, is that there will be a further tightening of sanctions. Um, third of all, there is diplomacy. Uh, really interestingly, um, the Chinese today suggesting that they think they could be part players in all of this. Now, isn't that fascinating? Mm. Because the more we put sanctions on Russia and perhaps ultimately even threaten some of the gas and the oil that they sell to us, the closer it drives Russia towards Beijing because where else is there to go? So it's possible that Beijing could be a peacemaker here? Well, it could be in the, in, in the stock that China does not like this. It does not like the unsettling. I mean, aside from the horrific elements of war, um, China does not like how this is unsettling the global economy and the possible consequences of that. And this could be a big moment, you're right, for China, that it might feel the need to diplomatically step in as the only mm. major world power that could do so. Um, and we have got these talks, I think, that are going to resume on the Belarusian border tomorrow between uh, Ukrainian and Russian officials. Well, frankly, that doesn't seem to be going terribly far, given the fact that Russia seems to be st stepping up its military campaign. And then fourth of all, of course, is the humanitarian aid uh, we're looking at millions of people now in the days and weeks to come who are going to either flee Ukraine or need aid inside. The European Union committed 500 million euros, uh, Britain uh, committing a sum of money as well, uh, and obviously that big announcement today on visas as well. So there are four things that Britain feels that it could go further on, yeah. but, you know, be in no doubts. At this moment in time, there is no sense that there's going to be a no-fly zone or Britain militarily will do uh, more in terms of direct action. The one thing I would caveat all this with is, um, is how difficult things could get, particularly in the capital, Kyiv, if the Russians start indiscriminately bombing civilians. Which, like we've seen which in happened Chechnya, in Chechnya. Yeah. Which we've seen in Chechnya. Yeah. Yeah. I think Western public opinion will pile an enormous amount of pressure on Western leaders to do more. We know in the past, of course, the West has stepped in when we thought that Benghazi was going to be obliterated off the map by Colonel Gaddafi. Mm. And now, that wasn't a NATO campaign, but, you know, it was a campaign led by the West. I, I'm just suggesting that, you know, things could get very, very difficult. But at the moment, the clear message from the Prime Minister today, repeatedly, and a message aimed, it must be said, also yeah. at the Kremlin, is that we are not going to go down this route. Darren, thank you very much indeed. And interesting to me that Brexit Britain actually has been speaking more loudly and more directly and acting more quickly. And the European Union, yes, they've caught up because the Germans did a U-turn, but it just goes to show I do actually genuinely believe that as an independent country, we've got a much bigger, stronger voice. Now, last night we were joined by Adam Holloway, the Conservative Member of Parliament for Gravesham, who serves on the Home Affairs Select Committee and served in the British Army's Grenadier Guards for five years. And it was fascinating because he was right there on the border of Poland and Ukraine. And it did cause, well, number 10, don't appear to be very happy about the fact that Mr Holloway is there. Well, he's there today 
in Ukraine. Um, and I know our connections uh, with Ukraine are not easy, but he's joining this programme exclusively. Adam, can you hear me? I certainly can, Nigel. Good. So just tell us, please, what you've seen and what you've heard today. Well, today I've been meeting um, senior uh, Ukrainian officials, um, security officials, and also uh, a general who'd literally just driven out of Kiev. It had taken him a day. Um, it seems that the situation there is becoming very difficult and that the city is soon to be encircled. He says that, uh, that, that, that there are Russian special forces in the forests around the place. And I think he mentioned a 27 kilometer gap uh, for people to drive in and out. Obviously, I'm not there. I'm in the west of the country where the war hasn't come here yet. You know, there have been limited missile strikes on military facilities outside where I am. And then there's the regular um, drumbeat of uh, air raid sirens and you know, everyone has to go inside. So I'm not in Kiev, but it does seem, according to the general uh, that I met today, that um, you know, it's becoming a pretty, uh, it's, it's, it's a sort of decisive point. And the point that everybody here is making is that they're not asking us to come and fight this war for them, because we know we can't do that. But what they are asking for is the means to fight the war and to you know, stop Kiev falling. Because if Kiev falls, you know, that makes things very, very difficult in the rest of this country. I mean, presumably, looking at the determination in the Ukrainian people, and you spoke yesterday about people queuing up and volunteering, I mean, presumably, uh, this, is going to be a, this could be a very bloody battle. Is it possible, do you think? that Ukraine can hold against such overwhelming force? Look, you know, there's a, allegedly a 40-mile convoy of, of war machines, material of war, uh, a, a massive logistic chain. I mean, you know, our audience, our populations in Europe, you know, we, we, we need to understand this, what's happening here is very, very, very serious indeed. And what the Ukrainians have been saying to me, the consistent message uh, throughout today has been that, you know, they'll do the fighting, but they can't do it without proper air defence, without um, anti-tank weapons. And I know Britain and other countries have already provided them, but they, they say they need to be able to stop Russian air power. They've got a, a shopping list of items, which I won't go through, but it includes old planes, uh, old Soviet aeroplanes, from neighboring countries. And they talk about uh, creating an anti-Putin alliance. Nobody here is against the Russian people. It's, it doesn't seem to be about that. It seems to be about being against the kleptocracy, as they put it, of, uh, of the oligarchs. And they also talk about, you know, in the Second World War, we had Lend-Lease, where the Americans lent money and leased uh, uh, weapons and machinery to us in the war but without actually entering the war. And that's the model, I think, that they want the West to adopt in this. But as I say, they'll do the fighting, but what they say is they desperately need the materials. Adam, as a former soldier, a politician, do you feel we should be doing more than we're doing? I'm not sure. I don't know what we're doing because I've been here for, and including traveling you know, for the last sort of three days or so. I know the Prime Minister is taking this incredibly seriously. I believe he's been in Poland today. I think I saw some, some pictures. But, you know, what the West needs to do is get together and just have a think about how we deal with this situation. But I think the nub of it for these people, you know, if they're going to hold uh, Kiev, then they are going to need supplies from somewhere. Um, and that somewhere has got to be on countries around their border. And, and Adam, tell me, are you in much trouble with number 10? Do you know, I, I truly don't know. All I've been doing is trying to maximise my time here to, um, to, to you know, see and talk to as many people as possible. I think it's completely reasonable for number 10 to expect members of parliament and the rest of the public to obey foreign office travel advice. But I ignored it in Libya. Uh, I've ignored it in uh, northern Iraq in the fight with ISIS. And I ignored it quite a few times uh, during the war in Afghanistan, where we had uh, officials, civil servants 
uh, senior people in the MOD telling, the, telling us that you know, being in Afghanistan was the most marvelous thing to be doing. And some of us, uh, and there are several other MPs who did this, who, who took the trouble to go there and try and find out a bit of ground truth, we were actually able to, to, to say that this was not making a lot of sense. You know, MPs can be outside the sort of the group thing of the civil service sometimes. And I, I really think if you're going to stand up in Parliament and talk about these things, you've kind of got to know, you know, what, what, what's, what's going on in the world. And because I've been a, a soldier and, and a, a foreign correspondent, I was the ITN correspondent in Sarajevo during the siege for a bit, you know, this is something I can do. I, I, you know, I, I want to make a contribution. You know, they, they, don't, they haven't put me in the government. Um, so, you know, this is just one thing that, that I can do and to, to try to be useful and not a waste of rations. I have to say, Adam, you're doing it really very, very well indeed. And I thank you hugely for joining us here exclusively on GB News. That was Adam Holloway. Well, another fantastic report from Ukraine. And we talked there. In fact, we've talked all through the programme so far about airstrikes. What are the difficulties with airstrikes? What, actually, what kit do the Ukrainians have, if anything? We'll talk about that and perhaps the military side of this a little bit more in a moment with Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley. I asked you, should we be doing more to help Ukraine? Some of your reactions. Louise says, yes, a lot more. The huge convoy heading for Kiev, plus Putin using more destructive weapons. It's only a matter of time before the capital falls. Well, it does feel a bit that way. Elizabeth says, no, we're doing more than enough. Matt says, should we really be getting involved in a war that doesn't involve us? Afghanistan 2.0. Blair didn't have a clue and neither does Boris. Just look at his hair. That's a bit unfair. One viewer says, HMG, on our behalf, are doing all they sensibly can and leading the way. And yes, that's right. We have actually, Brexit Britain has actually been leading the way. And that's a good thing. And finally, Graham says, never mind Britain doing more for Ukraine. What about the 27 nations of the EU? Well, I think they did in many ways step up to the plate yesterday. Now, joining me to discuss the military side of this is Lieutenant General Jonathan Riley, retired British Army officer, military historian, a man who served tours in Serbia, Bosnia 
and Sierra, and Sierra Leone. Um, Lieutenant General, what I saw this morning, uh, the pictures... Uh, good evening, by the way. What Hi, I saw... Nigel, the, nice to see you. The pictures of a 40-mile military convoy headed towards the capital, um, and I thought, well, you know, these Ukrainians have been resisting amazingly well, but they're about to be totally overwhelmed in terms of force, um, of, of numbers um, and equipment. And I thought to myself, surely airstrikes would be the way of at least delaying uh, and causing that convoy some problems. What is the situation with the Ukrainian Air Force? Uh, well, as, uh, as far as I know, their equipment is mostly former Russian uh, equipment, uh, MiG-29s and uh, Su-24s and Su-25s for ground attack. Uh, but, and they've recently been given, of course, uh, Western air defense missiles. Um, so in terms of the, the, the question of, well, what more can we do? Uh, mm. you know, we don't have these sorts of aircraft. Uh, we don't have the, 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 the means to supply spare parts or training for them. So your point about uh, assistance from neighboring countries, which might have this sort of kit, being, being former Soviet satellites themselves, uh, is, uh, is absolutely right because uh, the Ukrainians would have a chance uh, to get aboard these uh, equipments uh, and do something fairly rapidly, bearing in mind that whatever they do, they're doing it in contact with the enemy. So it's no good us sending very high-tech Western equipment, which comes with a huge training burden, a huge maintenance burden, uh, and yeah, they, they, they just won't they just won't do it. It might it might sound good, it might have a great yeah. moral effect, but physically, uh, we'd probably just be uh, be creating a scrap heap. Yeah, and what about the no-fly zone? I mean, Britain and America have been very, very unequivocal that we're not going to take part in a no-fly zone because that could lead to open confrontation with Russian jets. Uh, do you think that's the right decision? I think it's absolutely right. Um, Ukraine, uh, for for all the sympathy that we have, uh, we have with it uh, and its people. And the, the scenes are, you know, they're, they're just heartrending. Uh, but Ukraine is not a NATO member. It's uh, a sovereign country and its airspace is part of its sovereign territory. So if we go waltzing in there to its sovereign territory, then we are uh, we are violating Ukrainian territory and we are coming into uh, direct conflict with uh, with the Russians by setting up a no fly zone. And on what legal basis anyway? Uh, previous no-fly zones have always been established with a UN mandate. There is no chance of that because, as we know, UN ha uh, Russia has a veto in the UN. And, and how sustainable is that in the long run? How sustainable uh, is Russia having that vote? Uh, that's an interesting question, and you better ask your diplomatic editor for that one. It's one that's <laughs> crossed my mind quite often. How extraordinary! Um, but, but, but but you're quite right about the um, uh, the size of the target array. That's coming down the road to Kiev, and and uh, you know, for an air force, if it can operate, if if the if, if the air situation is favourable, it's one hell of a juicy target. Look look what the Allied air forces did to the Iraqis at the end of the first Gulf yeah. War. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, but to do that, you've got to be able to fly, and uh, we don't know for sure the degree to which the Russians have established either air superiority or air supremacy. One piece of kit that we might think about sending, if we haven't already, uh, that would help to improve that situation is jamming equipment. You know, stop the uh, stop the Russian pilots' ability to navigate, stop the, their ability to drop precision guided weapons, uh, to communicate with other with other aircraft. Okay. That, that would uh, that would cause some significant difficulties. Now, looking at the situation in the capital, uh, you know, we know there are a significant number of Ukrainians there. And from everything we hear, they are ready to fight. They do have some ammunition and equipment, not, not a vast amount, but some. From a military history perspective, you know, how long can a force that is there and determined, how long could it hold out against overwhelming military might? Uh, well, the obvious parallel is Stalingrad, isn't it? And that ended well. Um, 
urban warfare, military operations in urban terrain is massively uh, expensive in blood, munitions, uh, 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 equipment, damage, time, uh, everything. And um, the Ukrainians might be thinking they can suck the Russians in and, <clears throat> and, and grind them down. Uh, if I were the Russians, I'm, I wouldn't go there. Uh, I would surround. I would surround the city, uh, and uh, and and isolate it, and, and cut off its water, cut off its electricity, cut off its uh, cut off its fuel. Uh, the last thing I would go in and do is 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 go in uh, and suffer the sorts of casualties, and indeed inflict the sort of casualties that they might do, because heavy weapons in urban terrain are pretty indiscriminate. They're very blunt uh, instruments. Look at uh, look at the trouble that the Israelis had in in Gaza, if you want a recent example. Yeah, so it's bloody conflict or it's siege, basically. Indeed, and um, you know, actually, it, it, the, I, I think the situation is probably even worse than we think because uh, Russian military operates in a series of echelons, you know, waves, if you like. Um, I doubt that the second operational echelon has yet left Russia. It's probably not even left barracks. So Putin's probably got plenty more to throw at it. Yeah, I bet he has. Jonathan Riley, thank you very much indeed for joining me here on GB News. Well, yes, whether it's a siege or whether it's an all-out bloodbath, it sounds like there's going to be one hell of a battle for Kiev. My What the Farage moment today is, well, it's one of deja vu, really, because the last time we had inflation in this country in the 70s and into the early 80s, there was a bit in the 90s, but not much. It was accompanied by a large number of strikes, often it seemed pretty endless strikes. And today, yes, the London Underground has been on strike. The tubes have been on strike. It's been absolute mayhem in London for anybody trying to get a bus or trying to get a cab. Um, it's been a very, very difficult day. And I just wonder whether, I wonder whether... And this is more to do with pensions and jobs than it is pure wages, this particular dispute. But I do just wonder, Liam Halligan, our economics editor, thought we could be heading into a winter of discontent. That hasn't quite happened. But, you know, we are seeing rising bills across the board. Today we learn that train fares are rising by more than the rate of inflation. I just wonder whether we're going to see a lot more strikes coming as a result of inflation back in the economy. Now, one of the heroes, let's, let's, let's have a good story, shall we? One of the heroes over the last few weeks has, of course, been Dr. Steve James, the critical care consultant at King's College Hospital. You remember, he's the one that confronted Sajid Javid. Uh, he's the one that came into this studio to announce that a group of them were trying to take, were going to take some legal action against the government because following the care home sector which shed between 30 and 40,000 staff uh, because they, people didn't have the, the double vaccination, said from the 1st of April that the National Health Service, everybody in it, including people working in offices, would have to be double jabbed or they'd lose their job. Well, Steve James joins me. Steve, good evening. Evening, Nigel. Thanks for having me back on. No, not at all. So it appears that you've won, not just you, I know, but, you know, together and all the different groups that have worked on this. But it does appear now that it's official that you've won quite a big victory for freedom of choice. Yeah, this is a, a, a victory. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things going on at present which people will rightly draw attention to. But let's take note of what's happened. People have stood up uh, across the country and said that they don't think this is a good idea. In the consultation process that the government reported on today, 87% said that they were strongly against the vaccine mandate. And that's it. That's a huge number. That um, They did some breakdowns and 96% of the public said that they were against the vaccine mandate. So I think that's a, a huge sigh of show of support. Well, so do I. And I have to say that you have been absolutely instrumental in getting this debate going. You had the courage to stand up to the health secretary to express your concerns. I just wanted to get you back on very, very briefly to say thank you and very, very well done you, Steve. Thank you very much, Nigel. Much appreciated. Brilliant. Good. Well done. Thank you. And it is a huge victory for freedom of choice. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the Farage at Large show went to South End. 
uh, we did our show live from there. And it was interesting because I was joined on that evening by Anna Firth. She's the new Conservative Member of Parliament that has replaced David Amos, Sir David Amos, who was so tragically killed. And she announced there that it was official, that finally Southend was going to get city status. Well, today, March the 1st, it got city status. And perhaps the date was perfect, because March the 1st, if you didn't know, is St David's Day. Southend becomes our 52nd city, and we wish Southend well. One or two more reactions from you, the audience. Peter says, and of course the question is, should we be doing more? No, this is Zelensky's war. He had the opportunity to address the issues and failed to do anything. Well, that may be a little bit unfair. Mike says, at least Boris is doing something. What are the other European nations, EU leaders, doing? Not very much from what I can see. And Joe Biden went to Delaware for the weekend. I know, sleepy Joe. Well, Joe Biden will be in action tonight because it is the State of the Union speech tonight. He'll be addressing both houses of Congress. It's a, it's, it's a massive event in the American calendar. It'll be interesting to see whether he actually intends for America to take back the leadership of NATO. Don't hold your breath is all I can say. Mary says, of course, we should be doing more than just talking in the defence of Ukraine, but years of underfunding has weakened our military capacity and Putin knows it. I think there are two big things that will change from all of this, whatever the outcome in the next few weeks and months. And that is there'll be a complete rethink on military spending. Germany has already dramatically U-turned from only spending 1.2% of their GDP on defence. They're going to put it up to 2%. And maybe we'll actually genuinely start spending 2% rather than adding in ceremonial duties um, and, and, and a bit of really rather creative accounting. Mike says, of course, we must do more while we fear nuclear war. There is no way we can hold back Russia. A red line has to be drawn. Lynn says, what an absolute hero and a very brave man the Ukrainian president is. Surely to God there is more we could do. Well, Adam Holloway there talked about a 27-kilometre uh, gap, and that is the gap to get in and to get out of the Ukrainian capital. And I would think that if we are going to need, you know, give more physical assistance in terms of equipment, ammunition, rifles, anti-tank capability, we're going to have to do it pretty quickly because it seems obvious that that gap will close and probably close very, very quickly. Now, one of the big debates over this week was sparked very, very much around the question of should British citizens, should they go... Should they be allowed to go? Should they be encouraged to go to fight in Ukraine? And there appears to be a complete muddle in the government as to who should and should not should not go. Every time you get a senior minister talking on it, they give you a different opinion. Well, one man that did go and fought in Syria is Mesa Gifford. But he was also in Ukraine just a few days ago. Mesa Gifford joins me. He's my guest for Talking Pints in a moment.
The GB News Tavern has been declared open. I'm joined by Mesa Gifford on Talking Pints. Mesa, welcome. Cheers. Absolute pleasure. Great to have you here. Now, let's have a look at you in Kiev last week. Let's, let's play this footage of you in the streets of Kiev. And this was last weekend, was it? It was, that's correct. I saw uh, men, I saw women, I saw people from all walks of life um, coming together, arming themselves, and going off towards uh, the front line to fight against the, uh, the Russian state, which has invaded their country. It's currently destroying communities, attacking innocent Ukrainian people, and people are angry. Uh, they're furious. Uh, they're the people who sweep the streets of Kiev. They're the people who um, cook your food. <laughs> they're the ones who serve you your beer. They're all coming together, picking up guns and defending their country. And uh, I respect that. We're going to come to why you were in Kiev a few days ago. We're going to come to you fighting on the front line against ISIS in Syria, um, about what you're trying to do now, about the mess the government's in, with Liz Truss saying, yes, of course, if you want to go, you can go, and that then gets contradicted by Ben Wallace, and then Boris says something else. But who is Mesa Gifford? Who are you? What's your life been? Well, my life has been um, quite interesting, particularly of late. So my background is uh, I worked in the city of London for a number of years. Uh, before that, I actually worked as a human rights activist. I spent a lot of time with the MDC, the Movement for Democratic Change in Zimbabwe. Um, I worked in the Congo uh, for a number of different uh, charities there, particularly Pygmy Charities. Um, and I sort of, in 2009, sort of fell into the city. Uh, but it wasn't something I was particularly passionate about. But then in 2014, with the rise of ISIS, the horrendous images on Sinjar Mountain, uh, the women and children trapped there, the, the use of sex slaves, some as young as nine years old, uh, just moved me. And I was furious that the British government had no plan to defeat and degrade and destroy ISIS. So uh, I decided to take it upon myself to go out and uh, fight back against ISIS alongside the Kurds. It was a fairly extraordinary thing for somebody working in the city of London to do, isn't it? Uh, sure. Uh, well, then again, you worked in the city of London. You I took did. on the Euro, uh, EU bureaucrats. Yeah, I did. What? I did. And they made my life very difficult. They were mm -hmm. deeply unpleasant. Um, but they weren't going to kill me. That's true. Um, and I have to say, it's particularly frustrating to see, um, and I, I agree, I do want people to support the Ukrainian people in battle. I know we're going to come to this, yep. but I, I found it particularly frustrating to hear uh, Liz Truss and others support British men going out to join the Ukrainians. But actually, a lot of Brits who joined the fight against ISIS were harassed, got themselves so, arrested. Yeah. Uh, so, so you, anyway, you decide to do this. You, sure. You'd had no previous military training. Mm -hmm. So what do you do? Do you mean you just sort of hitchhike to Syria? I mean, so, how does it work? Uh, it, was, it was a very modern conflict in the sense that um, the Kurds were under attack by uh, a, a force that was winning. Uh, ISIS had steamrolled over Syria and Iraq, um, butchered tens of thousands of people. Mm. And the Kurds were uh, fighting for their very lives. And they called out for international volunteers, very much in the same spirit as the international brigades that fought the fascists yeah. there. And, I, um, uh, and we were recruited off Facebook. Um, I flew out to northern Iraq, crossed the border. I went through a period of training with, alongside the Kurds. But it really was an amateur's war. Um, it was um, Kurds with very little training battling against ISIS, fanatics, sure, but also fanatical terrorists, butchers, particularly uh, butchers who are particularly barbaric if you're kneeling in front of them, if you're a journalist or you're a young Yazidi girl. They were no match to British soldiers or to anyone who's remotely professional. Um, so it was just a case of uh, First World War type battles against a peer that was very similar in many ways. And the casualty rates, for those of you that Monumental. volunteered. I mean, of, of those of you that joined the, the sort of the international mm. dimension of this. It was, well, I think about 10% of foreigners died. Um, in certain battles, it was 50% of foreigners that went to the front line were either killed or injured. Um, 12,000 Kurds died, far more than the international volunteers. Um, so um, it, it, was, it took a toll on the, on the international. How did you cope? 
How, how did a city boy cope with, with, with being on a battlefield with death on that scale? Well, I think, it's, um, I think it's a case of saying, look, during the Second World War, you had um, British men and women who signed up and they came from all walks of life. And they were almost forced into showing a little bit about themselves. What was their character? And it was forced on them by conscription. Um, here we had young men and women going out to join the fight against ISIS. And they were people like... Um, I don't know, Jack Holmes, who was a painter and decorator before going out. And he died fighting in Raqqa. So there was a young lad, just 22 years old, um, uh, who won the trust and the love of the local people and died fighting against the Islamic State. And he, so he showed the best of himself in many respects. Well, you saw all of that and you were quite shocked, I think, with the lack of medical care that was available. Yeah, well, I spent, in 2016, I was seeing people die from um, the most basic injuries. People were bleeding to death by being shot in the arm. So when I got back, I um, set up a, a medical unit. I brought in some ex-service people from Britain and America. And um, we trained, I think, about 350 Kurds in battlefield aid. We distributed about 400 IFAC kits. Um, and we actually uh, provided an ambulance service as well. And we ferried something like 900 casualties in, in a year back and forth between the front line and the hospitals. And, and that was all, it, it cost me about five grand. I've got to say, where did the money come from? Uh, well, I fundraised most of it. Um, uh, we got a lot of the equipment was provided by the Kurds. Uh, for example, we captured a, an old Assad uh, ambulance, which I had repainted, uh, redone up. Uh, I went to this American base, knocked on the door, <laughs> and they gave me some equipment, oxygen. Very, very, very entrepreneurial. It stuff. was. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so um, yeah, but it, and it's at the end of the day, it shows you that. Um, if you're willing to push yourself, if you're willing to stand in solidarity with people, you can make a difference. And you can be anyone, an ordinary guy. And it doesn't have to be on the front line in Syria. It could be in any walk of life. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I hope there's a message there as well. Well, in a way, isn't that what we're seeing? And, and I, you know, your report from the Capitol, and we've been talking for the last two nights to Adam Holloway, the Conservative MP. who's Good a, guy. I know him well. You do, I'm sure you do. I mean, there's, there's no war zone Adam doesn't go to. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Syria, actually. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, but, you know, he was bearing witness yesterday mm -hmm. to people. I mean, the sort of almost shades of 1914 and Kitchener and your country wants you and people are queuing up. Mm. Um, they're making sure the families are going west to safety and they're getting ready to fight and they're prepared to take the risk of the ultimate sacrifice. There's something almost... Uh, I sense in the last 48 hours mm. what we've seen with the leadership of the Ukrainian president and with these people volunteering to go and fight against a hugely superior force in terms of numbers. I think people in this country are warming very, very strongly uh, to this. Do you feel as strongly... Mm. Do you personally feel as strongly about what Mr Putin's forces are doing as you did about ISIS? Um, not necessarily. It's a very different kettle of fish mm. in the sense that ISIS was a death cult. Yeah. These are the most vile people on the planet. And I think it was actually the clearest cut in terms of, of a morality perspective, the clearest cut battle since the Second World War, since the fight against Nazism. So you saw it as good v. evil? Oh, absolutely. And I think and that may seem naive, actually, to some. But actually, when you and I, hopefully people will remember exactly what ISIS was at the time. The images of people being drowned in cages. Yeah. Uh, well, let's not even go there. There's the most appalling crimes. So so, um, but when it comes to Putin, he's also a fascist leader. He's, he's rolled back, <coughs> excuse me, on any notion of democracy in Russia. Uh, the new laws, the anti-LGBTQ laws that he's br uh, brought in. So he's a deeply unpleasant man. And on top of that, we've got Ukraine, which has suffered because of Russian influence over the last sort of five, certainly five years. It's been a terrible war. 10,000 people have died. But Putin, at the end of the day, wants to force his will on the people of Ukraine, and Britain should not allow it. Um, so I, I totally support anyone who wishes to go out uh, and fight alongside this sovereign state. So what's your plan for this particular conflict? So my plan at the moment is to... I've been back for a very short period of time. This is the first time I've actually appeared on anyone's show. Well, no, thank you for coming. Uh, well, it's, no, it's great to be here. I mean... Um, 
I think the next step for me is to focus on building a website that will encourage, uh, well, not encourage, but facilitate, because I don't want to encourage anyone, but at least facilitate anyone who's a former service person, anyone who's in the NHS, particularly trauma surgeons, engineers, that sort of stuff. If you've got any of the skills, uh, and at the end of the day, there is some major capability gaps within the Ukrainian armed forces. If you've got the skills, why not apply if you wish to? Um, so um, that's very much something that I've, I've taken on, and hopefully that'll be up very soon. And do you think people will go? I do, but people are already going. I mean, I have a very close friend, uh, Aidan, who's already on the front line fighting. Uh, he fought with me in Syria. Um, there are other British men who are also fighting on the front line as we speak. There are others who are going out. Um, this, um, this is a very uncontroversial war in the sense that I think already you're seeing the British government and the British people rallying behind the Ukrainians. So, um, yeah, uh, Long may it continue, as far as... No, well, I get the passion. Now, let's sort of head into sort of quite difficult territory here. You know, you're talking here about individuals who decide they want to go, and, and frankly, the government can't stop them. But when you got back from Syria, mm -hmm. I mean, you were questioned under the Terrorism Act, weren't you? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, but I, it, this is the frustrating thing. I was quite frank with them in the sense that if you arrest me, if you put me on trial, put me in front of a jury, and I will take you to the cleaners... Because at the end of the day, about 10% of those that fought alongside ISIS and the jihadis yeah. ended up in court. So why on earth would you put uh, Mesa Gifford or indeed anyone who fought against ISIS? Um, why would you arrest us in greater numbers? Why would you come after us when you've got so many bigger fish to fry, as it were? Um, there, are, there are literally thousands of people of interest to the security services in the UK. Uh, and the Crown Prosecution Service, they have made some terrible mistakes in the past. And I've always said the same thing. Common sense is what this there are people. Means. There are people with British passports who fought for ISIS freely walking the streets of this country, aren't Absolutely. they? Absolutely, yeah. And even, even if you are successfully prosecuted, you can only get sort of three, four years in prison. Um, Shamima Begum, for example, uh, is likely to only receive just a few years in jail. Uh, there are people a lot nastier and more vicious than Shamima Begum. She's just the tip of the iceberg. For me, the reason I sort of campaigned so ferociously about uh, of getting her back to the UK is that once you open that door, the floodgate is opened. Other people will use exactly the same excuses to make the same journey back to the United Kingdom. So at the end of the day, we have to put the British public first. We have to keep in mind our security services, which are already overstretched. Um, and that's where people's focus should lie. Not so on I'm beginning to get the feeling here that we go from, you know, charity aid worker to the City of London to fighting on the front lines, to doing what you're doing now as a facilitator. Um, it sounds like politics is next for you, Mesa. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I if, sense it. I don't know if I can deal with a lot of the politicians, though. Um, <laughs> but uh, you never know. I, I think... I think what this country needs is, is a dose of common sense, is ordinary people. Uh, I've got a, quite a large social media following, and one thing I do like to see is uh, particularly ex-service people running for Parliament. Um, Adam Holloway is such a guy, great guy, and it's very much people like him and others uh, that I want to see in Parliament. Um, so, uh, so just... political question, Mesa. Sure. If we introduce the no-fly zone, mm -hmm. that would, without a doubt, aid those who safely want to leave Ukraine to do so, but might risk direct jet-to-jet -jet confrontation with Russian forces, which could lead to planes being shot down, which could lead effectively to us being in a state of war mm. with Russia. Should we do it? Um, I, I think it's too late for that. Um, uh, it, and I'm, by the way, I'm, I'm not speaking now from a, uh, from, I'm not speaking from the heart, I'm speaking from the head here. Yep. Um, uh, I think at the end of the day, we need to be supporting the Ukrainians. I think um, we, if you wanted to introduce a no-fly zone, if you wanted to deploy troops, you do that before Russia invades. Uh, when Russia sends in 150,000 troops, it's a bit late. when you start ratcheting up, it actually is far too late. Um, uh, as, um, and I'm probably going to get it in the neck from a few of my Ukrainian friends here. Uh, what we should be doing is arming and supporting the Ukrainians. We should be bringing the economic might of the West on to bring to bear onto Russia. And if I'm absolutely honest with you, I think... There is going to be a regime change, but it's not going to be the Ukrainians that there's going no, to be a regime I think you're right. I think there's going to no, be a Putin regime. He's, over, he's overreached. I do think. Mesa, so. I could talk to you for hours.
But thank you. You're a man of great passion for joining Cheers. me on Talking Pints. Thanks. We're down to the last couple of minutes. We get to Barrage the Farage. You've sent your questions in. Andrew asks me, should we build up our armed forces and by how much? If you look at it, you know, we've run down our armed forces. We did it under the Labour government, despite asking them to do more and more. We've absolutely done it under the Conservatives. And yes, I think one of the big things that comes from this is we will see us demanding that we have stronger armed forces. What the last week has shown us is you never know what's going to happen in the world. Elaine asks, do you think Macron will use this to push even more the case for his EU army? Oh, I'm sure, you know, and, 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 and I haven't said too much about the EU wanting, wanting the, the, the Ukraine to join, uh, but I think they will try and use this to build up some sort of European force. Anthony asks, Connery, Moore, Dalton, which Cold War bond is the best? What's your favourite uh, bond? Oh, uh, Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig. It's I think. I, yeah, it was not, yeah. yeah. I, I quite like Sean Connery, but hey. Yeah. Colin asks, I think we should bring back national service. What do you think? Oh, well, actually, I'm tempted to say yes, um, and particularly uh, for young people to give them a sense of purpose. And also, it would be a good way for them to pay off their uh, student fees. <laughs> and, uh, the door. Oh, do you know what? National service would undoubtedly do the country a huge amount of good. I don't believe that it's ever going to happen. Last thought. As President Biden gets up today, he'll talk about his Green New Deal. Since he introduced the Green New Deal, the price of oil is up by 200%. We'll wait for that. <laughs> 